Welcome to the Fed Heads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the Fed Heads, Robert Shea and Francis Rose, each week to talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome to episode 62. I'm Francis Rose. And I'm Robert Shea. We made it through 61 episodes. That's great. We discussed briefly before we started recording today. This might be it. This might be it. <laughs> this might be the one. What might be too much arcana for people to tolerate? Mm-hmm. And and we might be bumping up against the ceiling of that today. But I think we've secured guests to guarantee that won't be the case. All right, beautiful. Uh, Emily Cornegay of HUD and Erica Navarro of USDA are here. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank well, you. What's the combined budget value of your agencies? At HUD, we have $53 billion in annual appropriations. Um, we also have about $85 billion right now just in emergencies. And then we have a lot of mandatory as well. A, a lot of. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's nice. accurate. That's a specific number. And we're at about $150 billion in mandatory and discretionary. Wow. So... Big dough. Big dough. Mm-hmm. Lots of money. Mm-hmm. Anywhere but Washington, it'd be real money. I don't know what to do with that exactly. <laughs> it's just a lot of money. It These really, two people uh, are responsible for management of the process by which we allocate that amount of money to the um, highest purpose. Robert mentioned something that I think is fascinating before we started talking, and that is the fact that you're not working on a budget right now or working with one. You're working with three at any given time. Why don't you start, Erica, and explain what that means and how that works exactly? Okay, so we're currently executing the fiscal year 2019 budget. In For fiscal year 2020, we're defending that in front of our appropriations committees, hoping to have House and Senate levels soon. And then for we're starting the 2021 process. So we have um, solicited to our, you know, our agencies to submit their agency budget requests. Um, and that goes on throughout the summer. So. Emily, is that unusual timing or is that kind of standard operating procedure for where we are in the spring early summer of the year it's standard operating procedure to have three budgets that we are working on three budgets at one time i think um right this year we had the fiscal year 19 budget fully enacted in february um which is a little bit earlier than the last couple of years frankly it, two years ago i think it was may by the time we had mm-hmm. a full year enacted bill um but still I'm, five months after the end of the previous fiscal year more than that. Yeah, no, it's, and, you know, last year we had five CRs. This year we had three CRs before we got to there, plus the shutdown, and the year before we had five. So um, there's always a lot of uncertainty with the execution process. Tell us a little bit about what it's like defending the budget. Right now, you're trying to get the appropriators to enact in law what you have proposed. Uh, each of your bosses has testified. The subcommittees are going to mark up the bills. Talk about that process, your engagement with Congress in that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So we go and present the full budget to the appropriators. We get asked a ton of questions. We usually also go talk to the authorizers. Um, and then we have a hearing with our secretary, but then we also have a lot of lower-level hearings with some of our political appointees or even just program managers where we're asked just a ton of questions over the last couple months. Um, And we provide a lot of technical assistance, too, where they say, well, we'd like to 
rethink what we're going to do with this program or we want you know more current actuals on on what we're actually executing this year so there's a lot of back and forth between the agencies and the appropriations committee as they're getting ready to mark up and we also have a, a bunch of report language as well so there's a number of due outs from the 19 appropriation that we are continuing to fulfill so all of which have been provided to the congress on time sure <laughs> That was many, the, that many was of which. Yeah. Congress demands Several. lots of reports, and agencies struggle to meet the deadlines by which those are required. Often, the people requesting them forget they've requested them and don't really care. Is that true? Well, we have a number of questions for the record that are continuously repeated year over year over year, which is actually a helpful thing because then you just update the fiscal year sometimes. When I first got into my job, we had 115 overdue reports um, to the appropriators, some of them going back four or five years. And so we went through a process of um, trying to work with the appropriators on what they even still wanted to see. And we also started churning out things very quickly that they really wanted to see. And then they also agreed that there were several of them that just were overtaken by events. There was no reason to send them. So we're down to just a handful of overdue reports. But Good. it's um, yeah, it's a frustrating process. How did you convince, or did you even have to convince, was it just an awareness process, um, convince them that they didn't need some of the things that they had thought they needed? Well, we started with 115, and we first asked them what they really did need, Mm -hmm. and then we pushed those out the door as quickly as we could and moved those through the process, which I think builds up a lot of goodwill. Um, And I have um, some great folks on my team through the Appropriations Liaison Division and some of the other folks within HUD who just made this a huge priority. And we got a lot of things out the door, which then I think showed some goodwill. And we were able to convince them that there were some that they didn't need, too. What is the next phase in the FY20 budget process looks like? The, The summer will be continuing to fend it. The fiscal year will end in September. What can you predict? I can predict that we will probably be on a continuing resolution if we're lucky. Do you? What about a, uh, the prospect for a shutdown? So, uh, <laughs> please no. <laughs> so I. So officially, you're asking that we not have another shutdown. That's correct. Okay, yeah. great. That's you so, heard it here on FedEx. <laughs> yeah, the last time that we had a full year appropriation enacted at the start of the fiscal year at HUD was 1997. So hope springs eternal that this is the year (laughs) where we walk in on October 1st and we know our funding situation for the whole year. Unfortunately, that has not been the case for the last 22 years. So hopefully we get a continuing resolution for a while. And I think the shutdown itself was, this last one was pretty painful. So I think we all hope that we never do that again. What do you have to do during a CR or what can you not do during a CR beyond what everybody talks about? Well, there's no new starts. Mm -hmm. But what are the other things that a CR requires you to do or prohibits you from doing that contribute to what everybody always – I've never heard anybody Mm -hmm. say, yes, CR is great. Why is that? Uh, from an operational perspective. So I think it's the uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. So, oh, well, first of all, if you're under a short CR, right, for a week, two weeks, you you just keep maintaining the, the smallest amount of expenditures possible, right? Normally, it's just salaries going out the door. Um, the problem really is, is under a CR, normally, historically, what we've said is you take the lower of the House, the Senate, or the President's budget request. Well, when you have a CR that goes for six months, seven months out of the year, 
that really doesn't give you a lot of time to actually execute the budget. So um, particularly if you're saying, I want you to you know, hit the lower of the House, Senate, or the President's budget, for a lot of our salaries and expenses accounts, that means no hiring, no additional hiring. Um, and it takes time to hire people. So mm-hmm. then you, you end up with a summer where you've got contracting officers and HR specialists that are, you know, burning, you know, b- at both ends, basically, to, to, to spend those salaries and expenses money, which particularly with hiring becomes really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you can't overshoot either, mm-hmm. right? So yep. if you you don't have your full year funding until May, you don't want to overhire and have too many people on board in September because then you go into the next CR and you suddenly have a problem for the next CR. Mm-hmm. I also would say about CRs when we've had five in a row in a year, every time we execute an appropriated budget, we go through looking at about a thousand line items for almost a hundred different accounts, and we go through a process where we get apportionments from OMB. We work with our shared service provider at Treasury, and we try to execute those funds. And it is a labor-intensive, manual process. So it's something you'd want to do once rather than five times mm-hmm. in a fiscal year. Mm-hmm. Once you start to stack them on top of each other, then the detrimental effect mm-hmm. becomes a lot more obvious. The the holding it's not just a holding pattern. Correct. It becomes more severe than that. Which I think is the what a, a good budget director in today's day and age is going to really work with their agencies to make sure that they understand the full flexibility that they do have under a CR. I think gone are the days where we are under a CR for three months and that's it. Um, we really got to work closely with our program agencies so they understand those resources that they have, that they're executing the resources that they can. Um, and that we're not sort of the, in this um, wait-and-see um, pattern that we've been in. You mentioned both of you uh, have talked about how painful the shutdown was or shutdowns in general are. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever been able to to tell me whether they think there's a way to quantify it. Is there a way to quantify it, or are there too many variables or too many unknowns to ever be able to say it cost us this much to that the government was closed during that time? Yeah, I don't know if I have a great answer to how specifically you would quantify it. There's certainly some incidental costs that are pretty that would be pretty easy to quantify. At HUD, we furloughed 95% of our employees and paid them for that time and then paid a lot of overtime when they came back for them to do the work that we had furloughed them during that time that they would have been doing. And so that's that's the sort of thing which is just a pure waste. It's hard to quantify. I mean, I always get frustrated when we think about our customers and the level of anxiety it produces for folks who really count on our programs. And I don't know how you quantify that exactly, but, you know, HUD serves people who don't have a lot of other housing options, and we're telling them that that's not entirely secure. So I don't don't know how you quantify that exactly, but it's a real cost. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's pull back from this dark discussion (laughs) and talk about something uh, positive. Your relationship with OMB... We talked about formulation. We're expecting guidance from OMB. That's a document they issue in the summer Mm -hmm. that tells you what they're expecting in your budget justification. Talk about when you're expecting that, what you expect it to include. Both of you looked so excited to answer this question. Well, Can I talk shut down instead? Yeah. It's <laughs> wow. The, the aptly named spring guidance in, that comes out in the summer. summer. <laughs> um, you know, I think, uh, I think when I first started OMB, I was one of those – I think they hire a lot of people like myself fresh out of grad school who are really excited about policy and provide a lot of guidance to the agencies. And now that I'm at an agency, I actually, I see the world a little bit differently. We started our formulation process for the 2021 budget um, in April, beginning of April. 
actually we prepared the guidance back in March and so we'll go through a process um, with all of our programs where we're trying to come up with good formulation numbers and we'll be almost done with that and then we'll get the guidance from OMB on what they expect to receive um, the first Monday after Labor Day. And so what's included in that guidance? Well, the target level that they want you to come in at. So they will basically usually set a target and say X percentage below the 20 president's budget request if this is 2021 guidance. They'll also include a number of management um, pieces that they want us to speak to. Um, I would expect something around evidence to be um, included in that as well. Um, probably something around enterprise risk management. And then they'll also have um, pieces around our key performance indicators and what they expect to see in the annual performance plan and annual performance report um, that we will include um, in addition to our agency submission. Emily and Erica spoke recently at the Performance Improvement Officer, Chief Financial Officer Summit, Mm -hmm. and you both gave examples of the impact performance had on budget decisions, budgeting. Mm -hmm. You're both also realistic about the impact performance can have on it. Talk about the sunnier side of that story. The examples, recount some of the examples you shared with that audience. So I I think USDA is doing a number of wonderful things um, uh, concerning incorporating performance into budget execution. When I say budget execution, I mean how we're making resource decisions in real time, not presenting the president's budget. We've got a number of dashboards that we include. So every single quarter, our undersecretaries will present where they are on key performance indicators. They'll also present where they are on budget execution, how much they've obligated to date, how much they've spent to date, um, and how that matches against their targets. What I love about the dashboards is there's a component in the dashboards where it's not just the financial information. It allows program folks to actually include an explanation as to what's going on with the program. Is demand lower? Is there some tax implication that is somehow slowing how much we're obligating? Is it as a result of staffing? We don't have enough staff to implement the program. There's an explanation in there, those dashboards, and then we have that, that review process where we talk to the, our deputy secretary around where folks are on budget execution. That's We just finished up our quarterly strategic reviews with our deputy secretary, and that's literally feeding into the budget formulation process. So we will be meeting with the deputy a month later to basically go through agency budget requests and how they're incorporating risk, how they're incorporating their current budget spend, how they're looking at key performance indicators as part of that formulation process. So the more that we do that at USDA, I think, the more effective we are in um, communicating issues that we have to the department level, um, to folks like me, to folks like the Chico, the chief human capital officer, to IT, to procurement. Um, but it also just feeds into our budget formulation process and, and developing the strongest um, budget justification we can to to the Office of Management and Budget. How has that changed over the years as more data has become available, mm-hmm. as what the people that you're all of the list of stakeholders has Mm -hmm. changed and the demands that they have of you has changed. How does this look different than it might have looked five years ago? So the dashboards for us are relatively new. So Mm -hmm. the secretary came in, Sonny Perdue, said he wanted us to make data-driven decisions. Um, And so we stood up dashboards across the the department. Um, There are dashboards on hiring. There are dashboards on procurement and contracting. There's Uh, dashboards on IT spending. And then in my area, there's dashboards on key performance indicators and budget execution. That's new. Um, Undersecretaries um, were not used to talking to how much money they had obligated and what the rationale was. 
Um, there was no conversation at the department level around what issues in program performance were showing up um, in there and how much they'd obligated. Mm-hmm. So the whole process for us is new. And let me be frank, we didn't have an easy system to pull financial data. Um, we had to basically work with a number of agencies, um, some of which had a different financial system than the department's financial system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an arduous process, um, but at any given day, at any given hour, you can go onto your dashboard and see how much money you're obligating. And that, to me, is makes the conversation more real. Because my understanding is, that to, to what you just said, mm-hmm. all of the bureaus and other organizations inside your department for a long time operated almost autonomously. In silos, yep. Yeah. Yep. So there, that idea of combining all of that stuff must have just been a really arduous process. It was. Um, but there were things that we were seeing at the department level that folks in those agencies were not seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw, for example, with Forest Service that we were slowing down on um, obligations. Um, and you could you could clearly see where the shutdown had an impact on that activity level. And, oh, by the way, maybe we should include that in our shutdown plan going forward because we could make a case of mm-hmm. life and safety and accepted, you know, an accepted category for that those, mm-hmm. those activities. So, Emily... HUD's got a storied um, program evaluation office that has provided a lot of good evidence um, for use in budget budgeting, but also other um, program decisions. Can you talk about that, your, your culture there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, HUD's Office of Policy Development and Research was started in 1973. Um, we have just about $100 million appropriated per year to that office, and they perform a lot of research internally, but they also fund external research um, with different partners. Um, and they do a great job of helping us determine what are the best possible interventions uh, in, in ensuring sort of safe and affordable housing. So um, one of the the recent developments that I think um, really showed their influence is funding a lot of research around homelessness and what the best interventions were in homelessness. Um, and they really determined over the last decade of extensive research that Housing First is a much more effective intervention, um, both in terms of its cost effectiveness and also just long-term outcomes for a homeless population. What is Housing First? Um, it's getting people into rapid rehousing rather than putting them in transitional housing, getting them rapidly rehoused, getting um, instead of putting folks in shelters temporarily, putting them into more permanent supportive housing as soon as you can. I'm glad we had this opportunity to talk about one of the most critical processes in managing large federal organizations, and that's the budget. How much money you get and where it goes is being managed at two large departments by both of our guests, and thanks for your insights. Emily Cornegay of HUD and Erica Navarro of USDA. Thanks very much, ladies. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Nice to see you as all. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. All of the resources talked about during the episode are available in the episode description. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GT Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to leave us a comment or review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 